Welcome to the AR-15 Podcast. AR-15 Podcast. This is the podcast about your favorite black rifle. This show is for you if you're building your first AR or you've been building ARs for years. There is something we can all do to take our black rifle to the next level. Welcome to episode number 206 of the AR-15 Podcast. On this episode, we're joined by Chris Graham from Yankee Hill Machine. Chris, how are you doing? How are you doing today? I'm good. So, you know, it's been a goal of mine to have you on the show because back when I first started getting involved with uh, the platform, the AR-15s, Yankee Hill was one of the the primary uh, destinations for myself when it came to looking for gear and getting some uh, hand guards or other accessories, and so I would say that I, I have a pretty fair representation of a, a number of your products uh, spread throughout all of my ARs. But uh, I've always been a big fan, and so uh, you guys have been one of the premier um, uh, companies that I wanted to have on the show, so we could get a chance to talk to you. So well, thanks for joining us. Like <laughs> so yeah, I think a lot of people kind of have that. Uh, Notoriety, I guess, for us because we're we're an approachable in parts guys. You know, there's all these five hundred dollar rails and you know, or widgets and stuff. And you know, we're the guys who put out some really darn good quality stuff for a lot less than you would find it from other guys. So, you know, and I think that's something I've always appreciated. You know, when you can see the quality, when you can touch it and feel it, and then you know that. Uh, someone's not kind of bending you over the barrel just to get it. Uh, I think that's kind of a refreshing thing. Yeah, well, you know, that kind of comes along, too, with being family-owned. Is You know, you're not reporting to dudes in the boardroom you're never going to see. You know, you still got to wake up and look at yourself in the mirror each day and say, am I doing the right thing? <laughs> well, you know, it's always nice to be able to enter that in the positive, right? <laughs> well, I tell you what, um, Chris, uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about the history of Yankee Hill. I know that we kind of went over a couple of things, but uh, Yankee Hill has been around, I think, far more, far longer than a lot of individuals might have thought. Um, so you're third generation um, with the company. Tell me, um, how did the company start up? So, yeah, like you said, we're the third generation. Um, a lot of people... Like you said, don't realize how long we've been in business or how long we've been in the firearm business even. Uh, so the way that Yankee Hill got started was as a machine shop. I'm directly involved with firearms in any way to begin with. Um, hence the term Yankee Hill machine and not Yankee firearms or anything like that. But uh, the way the story goes is that my grandfather and his uh, soon-to-be partner, Red Judd, worked together at a local battery factory, basically uh, assembling lead-acid batteries for cars and stuff. And Red said, you know, I'm off and do my own thing. I'm going to start a machine shop. Shortly thereafter, Red got into some health issues. And so my grandfather said, well, you know, I'll go out on a limb here and quit my job to try to help you get back on your feet and try to make something work between the two of us here. So he kept the business running a little bit and ended up becoming a full partner in the business. And at the time, they were making um, what's called uh, screw machines. They were literally machines that make screws and bolts and small little widgets like that. And, uh, yeah, they started on Yankee Hill. That's uh, 
not something you'll find on a map or anything like that, but locally the area of Red's Garage was known as Yankee Hill, and hence the name Yankee Hill Machine. Well, you know, Yankee Hill sounds like something a Texan would throw out as a derogatory comment, but... That's uh, that's why we go by YHM a lot. <laughs> you know, uh, we are Yankees. Uh, I don't know if Yankee Hill specifically has any, uh, you know, northern versus southern overtones to it or not. Uh, I try not to get involved in the politics of that, but uh, we're Yankees, but uh, we're not Yankee baseball fans, that's for sure. <laughs> well, that's always good. <laughs> so tell me, Chris. You know, after you guys, after your your grandfather and uh, his partner got the business started, what was kind of like the the first opportunity uh, YHM had to get into the firearm side of the industry? So the real catalyst for that was the fact that we're about twenty minutes away from Springfield Armory. Uh, you know, the original Springfield Armory in Springfield, Massachusetts. So my grandfather said. You know, hey, there's some good business opportunities in this. Let's go down and figure out how to become a government contractor. So he went down and basically said, I want to make parts for you guys. We're a machine shop. Where do we sign up? And they said, well, it doesn't work that way. There's some forms to fill out and stuff like that. So he kept on it and went through all the proper channels and all that. And we were awarded a government contract. Um, One of the first things that we worked on was the M16 cleaning rod kit. You know, this was in the mid to late 60s. Um, obviously, everybody on here is pretty familiar with the history of the AR. But um, basically, after some uh, use in Vietnam, they realized, hey, this is something you actually need to clean and maintain. And so my grandfather and an Army engineer sat down and designed the cleaning rod kit uh, that is still in use today. We actually still manufacture it. Machines that they developed it with. So that was really our first foray into the gun world. And... Obviously not a direct firearms part. The fact that we had become a government contractor led into other government contracts. So we started doing receiver extensions for ARs. We did op rods for M60s, um, top and bottom plates for uh, various belt-fed weapons, control grips for the Mark 19. The list goes on and on and on. We've done several dozen, if not hundreds, of different government contracts over the years. And that's kind of got us into the gun world. And then we said, well, geez, there's this growing civilian market in the AR-15. Now, this was in the, uh, the mid to late 80s. Uh, by that time, my father was very heavily invested in the business, and my grandfather was starting to phase out a bit. And so kind of the next generation's rifle, my dad kind of took and ran with that. Originally, OEM'd a ton of different parts for a ton of different manufacturers. Uh, upper receivers was one of the first things that we got really big into uh, with a bunch of different companies. Fun little uh, side note here. If you own one of the bigger guys' uh, AR-15s that was made from the uh, 90s to early 2000s, if you break it open and you see a letter Y stamped on the rear takedown lug of your upper receiver, well, that means we made it. Um, at least the upper receiver part of it. So, so- getting back to... Uh, Oh, go ahead. No, I, I was just I was just wondering in terms of um, the the market back then. <clears throat> was it was it a a time where you stood out? I mean, you know, obviously, you know, the eighties, early nineties, the internet wasn't a thing. 
but you know, I, I remember the Shotgun News and you know various magazines where you'd see the you know couple page layouts of various companies that were advertising. Uh, were you in that space? Were you selling to customers, or were you just doing the OEM stuff? At that point, we were just doing the OEM stuff. So at that point, we were actually designing aftermarket products. Uh, we're very well known for our flash hider, the Phantom series of flash hider. So have spun off of that since our initial inception of it. Um, and in our handguards, you know, when we started getting into this, out there for the aftermarket, for the AR, and said, geez, there's no reason that this handguard should cost dollars. You know, we're machinists. We know what it takes to make this. And we came out with, I think at the time, it was like an $85 handguard. And that's a uh, handguard. The very first version actually wasn't free float. Uh, anyone who's familiar with our handguard system that uses the forearm end caps and as a forearm barrel support. Um, basically, just uh, it would help support the barrel at the front um, in hopes of gaining better accuracy. But everybody was screaming for free float at the time, so we ended up basically changing the design of that a bit and keeping everything free floated. But that's really how we got into the AR game, was taking a look and saying, geez, you know, we can make a really good product here and not gouge people on it. You know, we can make this affordable to the average hobbyist who doesn't want to take out a personal loan in order to put a rifle together. Now, tell me in terms of, of the evolution of the company, um, <clears throat> when was that transition from OEM manufacturer into kind of self-styled, um, available to the public um, manufacturer of, of AR-15 parts? I believe our first retail catalog was 99 or 2000. Um, basically, at that point, we had designed several different products <coughs> that the various OEMs had, for whatever reason, decided not to pick up and either offer in their catalog or make a standard item on the firearm. And we said, at this point, we've been doing this for 45 years, aim on something and, you know, market Yankee Hill as a brand rather than just a machine shop. Probably a dozen to 15 different items, um, handguards, sights, muzzle devices mainly, um, some different rail sections and things like that. So we said, you know, we're going to create a catalog and we're going to start beating the bushes for business. So our first catalog was literally two pieces of 11 by 17 paper at the shop to hand out to the couple guys who wanted a catalog. And uh, like you mentioned before, um, Shotgun News... You flip through there and you see a whole bunch of people selling parts. We literally called up every number we could find in Shotgun News and told them who we were, what we were doing, and I guess like you could say, the rest is history. You know, we picked up some accounts who we still work with today, and basically have just worked to build the brand from there. You know, for the longest time, we've had basically a zero marketing budget. Um, pretty much all of our efforts were put into designing product and designing the ways to make the product in order to make them efficient and therefore affordable to the consumer without sacrificing any quality. So tell me about in this timeline when you and your brother kind of uh, matured into your desire to come into the family business. I don't know if we've fully matured yet. I don't know <laughs> if uh, anyone ever truly does. But <laughs> So we literally got our start working on the floor and the janitor, janitorial staff. 
you know, uh, a lot of people, especially third generation, you know, the business is just kind of handed to them on a platter and kind of said, here you go, play with this for a while. Uh, totally not the case for us. We really worked our way up. You know, it's not like we were dropped off on an executive position or anything. I spent my first summer there sweeping floors and scraping speedy dry off of them. And I got promoted the next summer, and I was able to paint the bathrooms instead of just cleaning them. Got <coughs> into the shipping department, started putting together boxes and packaging stuff up. And I packaged more cleaning rods than I care to talk about. <laughs> and uh, when they talk about the $50 government hammer, I know exactly why it costs that. Because it's, you know, you dip the part in the special oil, and you wrap it in the special bag, and then you put that in the special pouch seal it with a special tape that goes in a special box which is sealed with a different special tape which then goes in a different box which is then sealed with the a different special tape uh literally no exaggeration there so now is that some bureaucrat that's justifying their own existence by creating a specification for <laughs> the the exact way that something is supposed to be done all I know is I don't want to be the engineer at the army who has to design the packaging for that kind of stuff because it would just bore <laughs> me to tears it must be somebody who's got a uh, cousin or something that has a box company or a tape company or something like that. Oh, jeez. <laughs> but uh, I, I will say with uh, with no uncertainty that uh, the product definitely arrives to the government in working condition because of the way it's packaged. So kudos to them on that. You know, that fifty dollar hammer is no good if it's broken by the time it gets to them because it only cost them forty nine dollars. <laughs> That's true. So. Uh, you had mentioned when we were talking earlier that you kind of made the transition from working at the company to to going to college and and how did how did you transition through those years and and find your way back to the company yeah i guess i kind of got on a uh, little tangent about boxes huh <laughs> so yeah um after the packaging thing i worked on the floor for a little while and i said uh okay well i'm going to go off to college i'm going to take some business courses and a while and I really wasn't being challenged by it. You know, I was always a math and science guy in high school, so very appealing to me. So I moved over to the, the engineering course of studies and was really let down by the fact that I knew I wanted to be a mechanical engineer. I already had a career in mind. You know, I went three semesters without taking really a single core class, you know, different introductory classes and stuff. I didn't want to have to deal with electrical engineering and civil engineering. I wasn't interested in. Mm -hmm. So I literally woke up one day and said, I've lost more information about this business that I plan to work in than I've gained here and went back to work. Around the same time, my brother had gone to vocational school uh, for carpentry because originally he didn't want anything to do with machine shop. You know, that was just work to him. It was something that really just didn't appeal to him. Uh, right up until the time that he actually started working on the job, uh, he started in the winter, and basically his job for the first couple weeks was just shovel out the snow that came in because they didn't get the deck on the house before the snow fell. So he was shoveling basement snow and said, geez, that machine shop sounds a lot more appealing all of a sudden. <laughs> so he came back in, and uh, he, hopped right, <clears throat> excuse me, he hopped right on the floor, the lathe department mostly, eventually became uh, very well-versed in the lathes. He was doing, <clears throat> excuse me, he was doing setups and he was checking his own parts and department. And then he transitioned into the inspection department 
Obviously, he did all of our QC stuff, physical inspections, as well as some of the paperwork side of things. Um, and about that time was when I came back and said, you know, let's do this for real. And so he and I put together kind of a little R&D team. I was still running the business full time, and we were just kind of helping out, picking up the slack, I guess you could say. A couple of machines, a CNC toolroom lathe and a CNC toolroom mill, started to get involved with uh, computer-aided design and computer-aided machining, uh, up until which point the company really didn't have any of that. They did everything by paper and by hand. So is into the next generation of technology and design. So we had our programs, we had our machines, and that's when we really started to work on some new products, further expand the line that had been starting. Can you give me an example? Can you give me an example of one of those one of those first products that you guys came up with? Yeah, for sure. So the first handguard that we came out with was basically just our the system that became free float. Um, it was fairly heavy, fairly bulky, uh, full quad rail, Picatinny. Job done, but it really lacked any style. So now that we had our new computer-controlled stuff, you know, we got a little creative, tried a couple different things as far as um, heat vents and stuff like that. So what ended up coming out of that was our Diamond Series handguard, which oh, our best-selling handguard line, um, our best-selling top-end arm line. Um, so basically, the computer-aided design tools that allowed us to get a little bit fancier I'm, is still one of our best-known for products and best-selling products to date. Well, I can, I can attest to that. I think I own two of them. <clears throat> so as you kind of began this process, were you kind of at the, the beginning stage of the the wave of innovation of accessories that that began to hit the market for the AR, or yeah, we were pretty much on the ground floor of that. Um, you know, like I said, we had looked, and there were a couple other accessory companies out there, mostly guys who were supporting military teams and stuff, and did civilian stuff on the side. And we were going for kind of the opposite thing. We were going pretty much strictly for the civilian market through OEM AR-15 stuff, not necessarily M16 or M4 stuff. Um, just to take, for example, in the early 90s and even the mid-90s, if you picked up a Bushmaster catalog and looked at their BMAS accessory line, you know, at the time, 90% or better of that was YHM product. Um, same with a couple of other of the big guys in the industry. Um, some of the products we still offer today were originally their accessory lines, basically. Huh. So we were among the first, at least, to kind of hop into the civilian AR market, AR accessory market. So was there kind of a thought that this was where you should be in terms of the direction of the company? Or have you kind of always maintained that core um, military contract side in parallel to the pursuits on the commercial side? For the most part, yeah, we have always kept sort of our civilian line and our military stuff separate. So we still do some government contracting work. Um, and obviously that is all the government specs. You know, we have no leeway there. It's pretty much just make the part to the print and ship it. Whereas on the civilian side of things, where we actually get a chance to design it, build it, more importantly, figure out how we're going to make it, that's what allows us 
to give such a good value for the money, you know, because we're not just designing something and going, hey, this is going to be really neat. We're designing it. We're figuring out what to make it out of, how to make it, how to hold it while we cut the part, what type of tooling to use to cut it. And all of this combines into a lower cost to produce the product and therefore a lower cost that we can sell it for. So your brother and you, are you kind of the core of the innovation department right now? Is, is, is that fair to say, or have you built a team of, of uh, young machinists and engineers that, that help you kind of stay current with where the industry's headed and what people want to buy and, and where their tastes are migrating to? Well, when my father was running the business, he was always the new products guy. You know, the new ideas came from him, and he kind of dictated the ideas down. And, you know, the final design and production stuff was always kind of hashed out after his idea. Kevin and I started off that way. Um, basically, we're the idea guys. We come up with something. You guys figure out how to make it. We'll help you along the way. But uh, in the last probably four or five years or so, uh, we've transitioned out of that a little bit more as we've picked on some new staff and people have taken up some new roles. And we've got a team of guys in our engineering department who have some really good ideas. You know, they get out and shoot a lot. They're really enthusiastic about the industry. And so they've come up with a lot of ideas. And, you know, we've basically greenlit those and said, you know, yeah, that sounds great. Um, let's see what you guys can come up with. And so we've actually different ideas and continue to pursue them to this day. And not even just our engineering department, you know, we take constructive criticism and ideas from guys on the shop floor. You know, if the janitor comes up to me and says, hey, I've got an idea for something, okay, sure. You know, show me a rough sketch or something or, you know, sit down with me. We'll hash out something in SolidWorks and happen. So we've had guys from all aspects of the shop. Um, involved in new product development. So <clears throat> when it comes down to kind of keeping your finger on the pulse of the, the firearms industry, um, are are you guys all shooters? I mean, do you get out and, and you know, work your rifles, compete, or, you know, go somewhere and just, you know, shoot for the afternoon? Um, is, is there something in your blood at this point that kind of keeps you, I don't know, vital and, and fresh when it comes to, you know, competing with the other companies? And I guess from the, the two or three that you were talking about at the, the beginning, there's hundreds nowadays. Um, what is it that you do that kind of keeps you involved in the firearm side on a personal basis? I think anybody who's, in this business and doesn't enjoy getting out shooting the firearm is in the wrong business. Um, <laughs> that uh, when shooting became part of work, I found myself shooting a little bit less, or maybe not less, but differently at least. Um, you know, I still get out and shoot the AR-15 all the time and in different scenarios and say, you know, what can I change here to make this work better for me and, you know, collaborate with the other guys at the shop and, you know, gather from their experiences at the range or doing three gun um, caliber carbine. I've got a couple of friends who are big into that right now. So they try out some new products and stuff for us and try to get a feeling of, you know, what can we improve? What can we change? What we, what can we adjust to overall make a better product out there? Um, so myself personally, um, I don't shoot as much as I used 
do for that is because we make silencers as well as firearms. I'm a bit spoiled by that because in Massachusetts, as a manufacturer, you know, I can make the product. I can use it for manufacturing purposes, but I really can't technically legally take it and use it for recreational purposes. Ah. And once you start shooting with a suppressor, you really just anymore. <laughs> so I've kind of become spoiled from that. So um, I find myself actually shooting a lot of shotgun now, but, you know, I still spend a good amount of time on the range with AAR. And obviously, anytime we come up with a new idea for a product, we're out there testing it and really beating the heck out of the thing to make sure it's going to work the way we want it to and see if we can refine things any more than we already have in the design phase. So I guess the short answer is, you know, not just Kevin and I, but our whole team of guys who are in charge of product development and a whole bunch of guys at the shop are all whether it be competition or target or long range or clearing your head for a while, focusing on that bullseye. See, I've always thought that that has to be one of the principal motivators if you're going to be in the industry. Otherwise, I, I, I could just never see how an individual would be able to connect with the people they're designing for, the platform they're designing for, you know, the problems they're trying to solve. So, I mean, I I think that that's probably the... It, it's got to be one of the chief hallmarks, I've thought, makes a company successful, is that not only do these individuals enjoy the work they do, uh, some of that work is their hobby. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that'd be like if, you know, we made can shafts for race engines, but, you know, we'd never built a motor before. It just doesn't make sense. You don't You don't really know what you're doing. Right. You can apply the theory and the science to it, but until you get in there and actually start turning some wrenches, you know, you're not really experiencing it in real world. So tell me, in terms of like the last 10 years, I would say looking back from, you know, the outside, that there has been just an enormous amount of change. Um, do you think that there is anything that's happened in the last 10 years that has really kind of struck you as being... Um, monumental in you know the firearms industry in terms of the the AR15 platform and you know YHM's uh, perspective or position in the industry. Well, I mean, in 2004, we were all promised change, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't well, mean to get too political, but I had to throw that in there. So uh, no, I think that we've definitely seen a change in the firearms industry um you know for a while you know let's be honest a lot of sales have been fear driven there's always been that fear that you know hey i might wake up tomorrow and this firearm that maybe i've you know just had a casual interest in i won't be able to purchase one tomorrow um so obviously there was a huge boom in the ar market just because that was constantly in the news that hey this thing might go away um so anybody who had ever even thought about owning an ar-15 and at least bought a lower receiver at that time, which was great for us because we make parts and a lower receiver is no fun to take to the range. So, you know, <laughs> people point. come to us to actually firearm out of it. But I think that the industry as a whole kind of became a little, I won't say stagnant, but uh, placated. You know, pretty much if you had something on the shelf, as there wasn't anything else on the shelf for a few years there. Um, I think what you're starting to see now as some of that fear is gone is you're seeing some new stuff come out. Something that's, you know, oh, it's not just another rail or it's not just another this or that. 
you know, you're starting to see some real innovation. Um, you know, quad rails were it for the longest time, and now you've got Keymod and Nemlock, and who knows what the next one might be. Right. Um, you're, you're starting to see some different ideas going out there. Just take a look at uh, all the different ideas that the California change has brought about, all the different to, uh, you know, make these compliant firearms because it's still a firearm people want to shoot. So, being a lot more of that, industry kind of has time to recover from basically saying, let's make as much as we can because we know it's going to sell to, okay, now we actually have to sit down and make something good, something unique, something different, something that people aren't sick of. Do you think that that's going to be the core of what allows companies to kind of keep afloat during this kind of period of uh, I, I kind of tend to think of it as a, as finding the equilibrium that I think know. that's going to be one of the contributing factors for sure um, you know there's a lot of guys who got into the business just to be in you know not necessarily because they were AR guys or they were even gun guys you know I think you're going to see a lot of those people disappear basically they're going to go into other markets or they're going to you know, not be able to survive in the world of the traditional gun world where things are kind of normalizing back to. You know, I've heard a term market correction thrown around more than a few times in the last couple of months here since the election. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that hopped on the bandwagon and, you know, when that bandwagon loses speed, they'll hop off and get on something else. Guys who continue to stay innovative, who continue to offer good product, you know, those guys are going to survive through. So when it comes to the idea of innovating, do you think that that is kind of a pure luck eureka moment thing, or is it about building teams of people who are capable of uh, just being prolific, coming out with new ideas on a fairly regular basis and letting them kind of go through that discovery phase to see if it's something that'll work? I mean, I've, really always wondered whether the success in innovation is because of kind of dogged persistence or because of you know that one guy that's always saying well geez now I understand that that we ought to be doing it this way I think there's a little bit of both to it Um, it's as much of an art as it is a science out there who are you know out there all the time shooting trying new things and they're saying hey let's tweak this let's improve this did you ever think about this Time you're going to have those guys who are like, hey, I just thought of this and nobody's doing it yet. And you know that one in a million idea could be a hit or it could be a flop. It's one of those things where if nobody's done it before, you know, you kind of have to go out on the limb and say, this thing is really great. We believe in it. Here's why. Ellis agrees with you there. You know, one of the things that uh, that we do is our easy pull and easy push pins. Basically, it's a takedown pin with a little bit larger head so you can grab it. If you're wearing gloves and stuff, you're not poking it with bullet tips or breaking fingernails off trying to take your weapon down to clean it and it's one of those ideas where everybody who looks at it goes geez why didn't anybody think of that before and <laughs> it was one of those eureka moments where you know hey look you change this one little thing a little bit boom done let's do it well so as a business owner where, where do you find yourself when you're looking on the horizon and Wondering whether any of that innovation is going to come from from your side of the your, your neck of the woods, is that something that keeps you awake at night, or do you just 
continue to seek new talent and continue to be passionate and optimistic about things? Um, it's a little bit of both. I won't say it keeps me awake at night because I'm worried it's not going to happen. It keeps me awake at night because I wake up and go, aha, I got to write this idea down. Or, geez, you know, I better tell somebody else about this before I forget it. Um, you know, as a business owner, you're constantly thinking about the business because the business is your life. Um, so it keeps you up at night, but usually for good reasons. Um, and then also on the same time, you know, you keep getting good people more involved in the design aspect of different products and, you know, make sure to not stifle those ideas and good things usually come from it. So in terms of the industry as a whole, do you think that we're going to have a bunch of these companies that we see today kind of fall off uh, the passion leaves them and they go for greener pastures and some other area or they're swallowed up by bigger companies to become part of, you know, larger unified uh, uh, product offerings? Or is, is there some trend you think is going to show itself here in the next couple of years as we kind of find that, uh, what did you call it, market correction again? Uh, not, not my terms, but uh, yeah, that is <laughs> what I said. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you're already starting to see, and, you know, you've got... Uh, Different companies who are either saying, you know, we're done, this is it, and other companies who are being bought up by not even necessarily these large conglomerate types, um, but other well-to-do firearms businesses. Um, you're going to see some change, definitely. You know, the people who the people who really know what they're doing are going to stay alive, and then you're going to see some people who, you know, either so they get out of it or their personal interests change and they get purchased from somebody else and start to see some more conglomerate and larger stuff grow out of that. Um, but yeah, I think the industry is definitely going to see some change and you're going to see fewer names. Do you think that's going to be good for competition and innovation? Absolutely. Um, like I said, you know, the last 10 years, people have become very complacent. You know, if they can get an AR serial number, that's great. Um, now that that fear of losing them is gone, you're going to need to stand out in what's become a crowded market. Yeah, I think definitely that's a, that's a problem I see. There's a very crowded market. And, you know, I think one of the things that, that, that I see from my side, which is a very small perspective, a lot of people ask where should they go to start? Because there are too many choices. Yep. And, you know, if you can't figure out where to begin, it's kind of hard to have new people join you. So is there anything that you guys are doing that you're really excited about today in terms of innovation or where you're taking the company or, or where you see the, the future leading YHM? I think... Personally, for me at least, the most interesting side of the business is the suppressor part that we do, um, mainly because the AR market was just kind of satisfied the way things were. And so the last couple of years, we've really had time to develop the suppressor line of things and really refine our design, make them quieter, lighter, more robust. Um, and like I said, you know, I'm spoiled at the range by those, so it's always fun to go out and shoot those. Um, nothing like doing torture testing R&D. That's uh, definitely the best part of the job. 
from a personal interest, the silencers or suppressors are the the uh, the most fun, I guess you could say. Not to say when we come out with a new widget for an AR or a new concept that go into the range and testing that is any less fun. But usually we test it in conjunction with a suppressor anyway, so. <laughs> well, so tell me, from the side of the, the suppressor business, <clears throat> when when you get down to it and you're going to improve or create a new design, uh, what is leading innovation? I mean, because... You know, my layman's perspective says that, you know, if we're going to talk about the engineering understanding of a suppressor, that we probably possess most of the engineering knowledge to make them good. So is that inaccurate? Is there a lot more that isn't known about how to make firearms quiet that you're discovering regularly? Or is it a function of refining processes or techniques to the point of excellence where your approach to the manufacturing is so much better than the next guy's that you're eking out that many more decibels of difference. What is kind of driving that side of the industry in terms of design and new product in in, in this day? Well, obviously the main purpose of a suppressor is to suppress the firearm shot. So, Quietness is usually number one on the list, um, and usually weight is number two. You know, because you don't want to hang too much weight off the end of your gun. It makes it less maneuverable, more cumbersome to handle at the range, and overall less pleasant to shoot. Um, third usually comes durability. Most people in gun, um, but we make sure that all of our cans are full auto rated for those that do. Um, a lot of different people offer a special machine gun rated model whereas all of ours are full auto-rated. Um, so what really drives the design are the consumer needs, number one, to suppress, number two, to not make it unwieldy, and number three, to make it durable. You make a fairly effective firearm suppressor really without too much engineering. Um, I've seen videos on YouTube of um, freeze plug suppressors and stuff like that. Um, so to make something fairly effective is not very complex to make something that's very effective and lightweight and durable that's where the real engineering side of things come in mainly we find that we're constantly tweaking designs um basically looking at flow simulations and just looking at the overall design and saying you know let's try this change and see what happens or you know i think this is gonna work really well let's try this and run the simulation and then let's go test it in real life and see if it all corroborates um, but it's really almost as much of an art as it is a science, you know, because you can have something that works really, really great on one caliber, bring it over to this, you know, other similar caliber, and uh, it's lousy. It should work, but it doesn't work. That is uh, just last year we released our nitro suppressor, which are, is our user configurable 30 caliber suppressor. We different design approach from our old 30 caliber suppressor. Um, technology to our 5.56 can, which was due for an update and, you know, started with the basics, said, okay, let's take our 30 cal can and put a 5.56 hole in it and see what happens. And lousy. Terrible <laughs> numbers. Louder than our old can. Louder than shooting the 30 caliber can on a 5.56, which not entirely sure the physics behind that, how that worked out, but 
So I literally said, okay, let's take three baffles out of it. And everyone looked at me like I had three heads, and I was like, just do it. And then took baffles out, and it got quieter. said, okay, take another baffle out. Took another baffle out, got quieter. Okay, all these baffles are this shape. Let's do the exact opposite on one of the baffles. Again, got weird looks. Did it anyway, got quieter. Hmm. So you kind of learn things along the way, and sometimes you have to just say, you know, let's do this backwards and see what happens. You know, it's not going to hurt to try, so... You know, that I kind of, part of... Go ahead. I think that's part of what makes the silencer side of things interesting is you've got a tangible net result that you can measure. So you can make a change and go out and shoot it and say, okay, that did two decibels better, or hey, that did three decibels worse. Um, now, you're constantly refining your design, you're learning from your mistakes, and you're seeing that tangible, measurable benefit there. So in terms of... Something you said, it, it kind of, to me, begs the question. In that space where suppressors are marketed and sold to the civilian world, is there a possibility that you're going to see companies move to a custom-made suppressor for a particular caliber where you're trying to jam as much performance into that can for that particular caliber. I mean, I'm I'm kind of reminded of the idea of, you know, all these different shaped glasses so that you can enjoy your wine that's from Burgundy, you know, and your Chardonnay and your whiskey and your bourbon, you know, to their extreme. And, you know, it's, you know, all these different shapes and, you know, design thoughts that go into it. And, you know, I'm kind of a Dixie Cup kind of guy when it comes to drinking stuff. I, I, you know, don't really see the difference one way or the other. Red Solo Cup's good, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But do you think that that's something that that is going to drive suppressors? Because I guess the contrast to me is one of my first thoughts. Um, The first suppressor I bought, I bought with the idea that I could... Um, change my uh, adapters and put it on different thread pitches and I'd buy the biggest caliber I thought I'd ever fire through it so that I could attach the suppressor to the smaller um, caliber firearms I had. So I, I had a multi-use suppressor and, you know, like drinking from the you know, Red Solo Cup, I, I couldn't really distinguish one from another. It, it wasn't anything that, to me, was meaningful. But, you know, I wasn't going to ever go out there with a recording device and measure decibels. And I wasn't going to go out there with a, a scale and figure out, you know, whether my configuration meets my expectations for weight, you know. So uh, I, I guess it just occurred to me that if you could fine-tune them for a particular caliber to that degree... Does that drive a manufacturer to create lines for that reason? Well, your current line of thinking of basically buy big and work your way down is 100% on point with the way 99% of people in the market think because of the regulations involved with suppressors. You know, you've got a long wait period, uh, $200 tax stamp, the fingerprint, photo process, all that. So basically you're going to say, if I'm going to go through this, I'm going to do it once and try to get the most bang for my buck. Uh, that's a term we try not to use in the silencer world, but uh, 
you try to get basically one suppressor that can kind of do it all. And that's definitely where we see a lot of the market now. I mean, you've got 458 cans that people are saying, you know, shoot 30 cal, shoot 5.56, you know, shoot 9 millimeter through it, go for it. Um, I think if you see the Hearing Protection Act go through, which would deregulate suppressors, they'd be handled the same as any other, you know, handgun purchase, long gun purchase, basically. Right. Um, then I think you'll definitely see some more specific stuff because the burden associated with silencer or suppressor purchases will be removed. You know, you'll have a lot more people who, you know, they're not saying, well, geez, I can only afford one of these or I don't want to have my time and money tied up for 10, 12 months. You know, if I can go and pick one of these up off the shelf, then, you know, yeah, I'll get one for my 30 caliber. And, you know, hey, I've got a 6.5 here, you know, they're saying I can get two more decibels if I buy this 6.5 can. Okay, now I've got this, you know, 5.56 gun. They're saying I can get another couple decibels with a 5.56 can. Then I think, yeah, you'll see a lot more of that if the regulations get looser. So I guess that begs another question for me. Um, in terms of where silencers are priced today, is... Any portion of that going to be affected if we do have a passage of the Hearing Protection Act? When you eliminate the $200 tax stamp and you realize that you can move more product because it will actually, you know, find it into the hands of the consumer faster, do you think that makes it, is that going to be a, a downward pressure on the price of silencers? I think in the long term, absolutely. I mean, you know, demand and supply, it's basic economics. You know, if there's more demand, we can produce more at a time. We can dedicate more machinery to the process, and we can improve the efficiencies basically just by making more of them. Economies of um, scale. Exactly. In the short term, you know, if HPA were to pass today, um, tomorrow morning, 10 minutes after I opened, I'd be sold out of suppressors because all of everybody would be calling up saying, hey, it went through. What do you have on the shelf? I'll take it all. <laughs> so in the very short term, the supply is going to be very low. Demand is going to be extremely high. So in the short term, I think that's going to drive prices up. Same thing you'll see when assault weapon bans were threatened and magazine bans were threatened. You know, you're going to, that $15 magazine, you're going to be seeing on Gunbroker for $60, $80, $100. Mm -hmm. Same thing's going to happen short term. And then things will level back out get back to normal and once the manufacturers have time to up their production I do believe prices will ultimately fall below what they are now um, just in fact just in part from the fact that the dealers won't have to sit on this paperwork and this inventory for close to a year you know that's a burden on them that inhibits their cash flow you know they sell a $600 suppressor they can't go and buy another one right away because they haven't actually gotten that one out of their inventory yet so right. It's really going to change the way that the whole market works, not to mention the fact that the number of firearms dealers who can deal in suppressors who have their SOT um, is very, very small compared to the number of just regular FFLs out there, regular gun shops, where this Hearing Protection Act goes through. Overnight, every gun shop in the country will be a suppressor-capable gun shop. So do you sitting at the at the head of uh, YHM with your brother do you do you think that the hearing protection act is a done deal or are are you of a different mind I would love to say it's a done deal 
Um, mainly because I would love to have easier access to suppressors myself. <laughs> um, obviously, if anybody knew what was going to happen on the hill, you know, things would be a lot different than they are. I will say it definitely has the best chance it's ever had. Um, it's got strong support from the presidential side of things. It's got a pretty good following in the Senate, um, in the House, but there's still hurdles to overcome. You know, the average bill takes three years before a bill becomes law. Um, we're only into our second year now, if you include the initial proposition of the Hearing Protection Act. Right. So we've got an uphill battle. You know, we've got to get 60 votes in the Senate still. We've only got 52 Republicans in there. Um, we've got senators from Democratic areas who are basically saying, there's no way I'm going to ever let this come through. So we have to avoid the filibuster in that case, too. And we've got to get more members of the House on board. So I will say it's got the best chance it's ever had. And we're very hopeful and we're very active in the community as far as trying to go out and garner support for the bill because it really is about hearing protection at the end of the day. You know, imagine a world where when you went out and bought your car, you could go home with it the same day. But in order to put a muffler on it, you had to go and get fingerprinted and submit passport photos and wait up to a year just to drive around your car and not have to wear earplugs. Yeah. Oh, and, and you know, I, I served in the in the Marine Corps, and I, I lost a fair portion of hearing um, back in the 80s. You know, it's not like they were really trying to protect our ears all that much. <clears throat> and so... You know, I, I, I feel it from a very tangible place. I'm, you know, absolutely convinced that there are plenty of other shooters who have the same conditions. And, you know, frankly, I do not agree with any of the reasons why they put the darn things on the, the list anyways. But, you know, there you go. Yeah, well, I mean, touching on that point, when the NFA was passed, they were fighting with the exact same struggles we are today. Most people's and certainly most lawmakers' only exposure to suppressors was through Hollywood. Yeah. You know, it was gangster movies and, you know, people running and gunning and, you know, crowds of people not knowing what happened. When in reality, that isn't and never was the case with the product. I mean, that's like, it literally defies the laws of physics. Um, the good thing about that is, though, is you take someone to the range and you show them what these suppressors actually do and what they don't do. And it's a light bulb moment for everybody who experiences it. I mean, you can literally see it in their eyes. They go, Oh wow. I've been told the wrong thing about this my entire life. And, uh, so the good thing there is it's a very easy educational campaign. You know, I don't know how many different demonstrations I've been to where, uh, you know, the police are concerned that, you know, if somebody fires inside a building, they won't hear it outside or vice versa. And so they say, okay, we want you to set up on the indoor range. We're going to stand indoors and have you shoot. And then we're going to go outside and have you shoot. And then we're going to come inside. You're going to go outside and you're going to shoot on the outside range. So I get all this stuff prepared up and, you know, I load up and I fire a couple of shots unsuppressed, throw the can on there, fire a couple of shots suppressed. And every single time they knock on the door or the window and say, all right, yeah, we're good. We don't need to hear anymore. This is not what we were expecting. <laughs> You know, it, it's an interesting time, and and there are a lot of interesting pieces moving on on the board right now. 
Is is there one thing that you'd like to see happen in the industry? But in in whatever aspect, from whatever direction, that you think would make it better right now? I guess it kind of depends on what your definition of better is and from whose standpoint. Well, how about um, from your position? Obviously, from my position, uh, you know, the more guys who popped up during the, uh, you know, 08 to 2016, you know, kind of AR buying craze, the more of those guys that, you know, fade back into the woodwork, the more we're going to stand out. Um, obviously not that I wish ill on anybody or their business, but, uh, you know, if, uh, it's a last man standing situation, I'd like to be that last guy for sure. Right. But, uh, no, overall, I think that, uh, you know, concealed carry reciprocity going through is going to be a big deal, um, in the firearms market in general. You know, it's going to get a lot more people interested in firearms because there's a lot of people who live on borders of states or frequently travel to other states and, avoid traveling to those places because they're basically being disarmed across some imaginary border. Right. Um, right. It's going to make them, you know, more likely to go out and get their permit and carry a firearm and shoot firearms more because they don't have those imaginary borders separating their second amendment rights. And then obviously the hearing protection act would be huge for the industry. Um, you're going to have, so much more innovation in the market and so many more new designs and creativity coming out of there. You know, the stigma will be dropped a little bit on it, which I think keeps a lot of uh, gun shops out of it. Even to this day still is there's still a lot of people out there, even within the community who have only been exposed to the negative side who don't really know what these things do. And that would bring it more into the mainstream. And, uh, you know, you'd see some really good developments there. Well, so before we uh, put a final uh, cap on it, Chris, can you tell me, is there, is there anything that uh, YHM is doing right now that you're particularly proud of that you want to tell the, the listeners about, have them come to your website and take a look at? Yeah, definitely. I mean, like I touched upon a couple times in the show, you know, we kind of got into this market by saying, you know, we can do this just as good or better than these other guys and we could do it affordably and you know as we developed our cans over the years we got away from that a little bit you know we were chasing this goal of uh better lighter stronger kind of the six million dollar man thing you know money's no option and we kind of got away from that you know let's make a great product at a great price thing and so our turbo suppressor which we just debuted at shot show this year uh, we'll have it at an array show coming up in a couple of weeks here we got kind of back to our roots on that i think you know we said we're going to make a fully featured suppressor that doesn't have any limitations, that sounds great, and it doesn't break the bank. And I really feel like we did a great job accomplishing the, accomplishing that. You've got a 5.56 caliber suppressor, QD mount, that's shooting about 134 decibels. It weighs 13 ounces, and it's completely full auto rated. And an MSRP is with our QD mount for 489 I mean, that's pretty much unheard of from the major silencer players at this point. Well, I, I, would, I would agree with you. That is an outstanding price. You know, I tell you what, Chris, I do appreciate you coming on. I appreciate uh, giving our listeners an insight into YHM. But I, I want to ask you, if you're serious about taking, uh, um, I guess, suggestions from, from any corner. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, we've, 
literally have guys on the floor who say, what do you think of this? And we pursue it. We've got guys on internet forums and we say, Hey, this guy's got a point. Let's take a look at it. So, well, yeah. What do you, what do you got for me? Forearm in caps. I'm, I want to let you know that the reason I love the, the hand guards I bought from you guys is because I could get a forearm end cap. And I thought that that was the most awesome thing that I could thread that into that, that, that forearm and, and it would just kind of close up that open gaping hole. I, I think you should make more of those for more of your, your forearms. It's definitely one of those things where it's like that aha moment kind of thing. Like, hey, this, <laughs> little $15 part really closes this thing off, finishes the look, and it really, you know, makes the thing look complete. Oh, yeah. The reason we're not offering it on more and more uh, handguards is because the current trend is to make longer and longer and longer handguards, and so you're basically free-floating that uh, forearm out further over the barrel, and so if there's any manufacturing difference where the barrel nut and the forearm and the upper receiver and the barrel all come together, you start to notice things drift a little bit. You know, just even if everything's totally in tolerance, you know, something that's out a half of a thousandth of an inch right at the breech, by the time you stretch a 16-inch handguard out there, it could be off 20 or 30 thousandths. Right. So you start to see that noticeable difference between the barrel and the handguard, and it really just starts to look poor at that point, even though everything's within spec. Um, so as the market trend has kind of determined that that's what they want is longer and longer handguards, we started to see an increase in people saying, hey, this thing's bent or it's crooked or it's not mounted right. <laughs> when really, yes, everything's fine, but, you know, take a piece of steel and stretch it out 20 feet. It's going to bend at the other end. Right. So that's the reason that you're actually seeing some of the newer models of handguards don't have the end cap is because people are doing that extended sight radius type of setup and it makes it more noticeable when you close off the end cap there oh i have to tell you i'm disappointed i'm disappointed that people are so fickle and demanding i think they need to lighten up on y'all because i love the end cap i think it's great (laughs) i love it as well and if we could make it perfect 100 percent of the time on everybody else's rifle i would do it in a heartbeat but you know we're not just putting our own builds out there we've got guys putting things together in their garage or in their basements and when things don't look right people assume things are wrong so wow well so once again chris i I really appreciate it you know i know that we have a lot of fans of uh, yhm that listen i'm a big fan i was just telling you before the show uh started that um I went out and and bought uh, uh, one of your M-Lock handguards. Uh, uh, it, it's just that the the two that I have are great, and you know I th- thought I needed to upgrade to the uh, a new weapons or I mean a accessory mounting system. And so you guys gave me all the choices I need, and I went with what I knew, and it was you guys. Well, we appreciate that. You know, we've worked really hard to build that customer relationship. You know. For the longest time, you know, you didn't see us in magazines and you didn't see us on TV or anything like that. You know, more recently, we've uh, we started to push the advertising budget a little bit. So, you know, we've kind of built the name up a little bit. But for years and years and years, we've gotten by just on repeat customers and word of mouth. So the product really has to speak for itself in that kind of environment. And that's what we've built our brand upon. 
Well, I do not doubt one bit the fact that your products have always been able to carry a great deal of uh, uh, respect and warmth in the eyes of any of the consumers who've ever had to to deal with them. Just wonderful stuff. So Thank I you. guess we strive for at the end of the day. So, and uh, I guess with that, um, that'll that'll conclude tonight's interview. Our thanks to JWB Military and Brass for sponsoring tonight's main topic. Go to JWBMilitary.com. Use the promo code ARP10 for 10% off quality once-fired military reloading brass, AR-500 steel targets, and more. That's JWBMilitary.com. Well, that's going to wrap up episode 206 of the AR-15 podcast. Send any questions or comments to ar15.podcast at gmail.com. Subscribe and listen to the AR-15 podcast for free in iTunes or on Stitcher. And leave us a review so the show can place higher for potential listeners searching for Black Rifle content. Share your pics with us on Instagram at AR-15podcast. Follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash AR-15podcast. Check out the other great podcasts on the Firearms Radio Network and use the Brownells affiliate link for all your AR-15 parts need. You can also support the show by going to firearmsradio.tv, clicking on pledge and clicking on the AR-15 podcast and supporting your podcast on the Black Rifle. That's a wrap for this week. We'll be back soon. This has been a production of the Firearms Radio Network. You can find more information at firearmsradio.tv.